Obviously, this past Friday was September 11th, 9-11, and um, a lot of, you know, commemoration uh, stories, a lot of um, ceremonies that take place, a fair amount of uh, news stories and specials that, that continue to circulate. Uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you in this room remember, like actually remember the events of 9-11 like real vividly like it was yesterday? I mean, raise, raise your hand. I mean, I, I do too. How many in this room were maybe too young or don't remember it that well or from firsthand experience? A few of you, yeah. So um, it's interesting when you think about an event like that, um, you know, I, 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 like many of you, kind of witnessed it, you know, on TV, I guess, and news coverage, but in a sense witnessed it firsthand, and, um, and it was a very uh, weighty kind of experience. And the details of that event, um, you know, I can, I can recall very specific little things that, that, that about that day, you know, where I was driving when I heard, first heard the information on the radio, because we were at the time living in, in Southern California, so... You know, we had a three-hour time difference from when the actual events were happening on the East Coast. And um, this rem- I, remember, I remember the TV and where it was sitting in our bedroom in this little townhome that we were living in. And I just, just all kinds of little vivid memories and recollections of, of my movements and actual spaces, you know, and, and of that day and that time. And I think oftentimes with, with events that we walk through like that, that, that tends to be the effect. You tend to remember those things much more vividly um, than, than other things you might experience. Obviously, the epic nature of the event um, had, had some heavy historic uh, implications and consequences, and so huge impact on our country. So it just kind of it weighs more heavily in your thinking as it's happening, and I think it gets seared into our memory more clearly. Um, and even though you and I have our own vivid memories of, of that event, those of us that kind of were able to walk through it um, on the news and on TV and, and, and were old enough to kind of remember walking through it like that, certainly our experience was nothing compared to those who were actually in Manhattan or you know, in Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon or in that rural area in Pennsylvania or were family members of those that might have uh, lost their lives or been gravely injured or the rescue people that were trying to help. I mean, obviously their memory is all the more vivid and, and significant. <clears throat> the sad reality, though, for all of us is that we're not very good with history. We, 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 really, we really, in general, are not good at remembering important things very well, um, especially things that we didn't walk through ourselves. So when it comes to history that predates our own personal experience, we have a difficult time grasping or holding on to uh, the details of those events, much less really thinking about, contemplating, and even understanding the implications of those events. What what do they mean? What are we supposed to do with them? Uh, How should those events affect our thinking or our living? We, we, We have a difficulty with that, I think, and we have a natural I guess, barrier to that. Um, I heard a clip on Friday on the radio, and it was, um, there was a young lady that was on the campus of George Mason University, and she was kind of doing the kind of the man on the street interviews, you know, where you just walk up with a microphone and start asking people questions. And she was asking questions of freshman students, incoming freshmen to George Mason University. And this is a school that's right outside of Washington, D.C. in Fairfax, Virginia. Um, fairly large university. And the question that she was asking was, why were we attacked on 9-11? So again, she's asking 
freshman college students. And this is a, this is a, a, a strong academic university, one of the most renowned research insti uh, institutions in the state of Virginia. So you have to assume that to get into that school, you know, you have to have some level of qualifications and, and some level of accomplishment at the high school level. So she's asking these question, this question, why were we attacked on 9-11? And most of the students literally had no clue. I mean, like, literally had no clue. Like, I'm not saying that they, they sort of feigned some kind of knowledge that they didn't have and gave some kind of answer and tried to weave some fancy words together so they, you know, they're college students. Of course they know what happened. No, not, I mean, it was like, uh, I really don't know. It was, those were the kind of answers. I, I have no clue. So when I say they had no clue, most of them literally verbally expressed the fact that they had no clue. Um, some of them obviously tried to give, you know, an answer, and most of the answers were clearly thoughtless. You know, like it, they were just kind of repeating talking points that they may have heard in a classroom or some, you know, political pundit on some newscast. In other words, you could tell that the answers that they were giving were not coming from some well of deep thought, pondering contemplation of why we were attacked on 9-11. It was none of that. So the, the full spectrum, I think, of, that, of those responses went from no clue to very thoughtless, very shallow kinds of responses. And, you know, it's interesting when you think about um, the trouble that we have with history. This is, this is an event for them that uh, at their age, they did not walk through, they, weren't real, they were very young when it happened. So their personal recollection of the events is understandably going to be slight. Okay? But the fact that they're college freshmen says something about either their grasp of the history that they may have been exposed to up to that point in, in formal instruction in school their contemplation of the implications of it, their thought about it, their interaction and engagement with the facts of history, it was certainly at least a reflection of, of that lack. Um, but really, I think it presents a more uh, prominent characteristic of really all of us, and that is really just this fundamental um, struggle that we all have with just basic self-absorption. I mean, you know, if it's not happening with me or to me or for me, like right now, it kind of really doesn't matter. That's kind of the, the nub of how oftentimes people in general operate. And so to think about something that happened like before I was even old enough to remember or to study historical events that happened way back when, it's just, it's not that I, I don't understand it, it's that it doesn't matter because it's not happening now and it's not happening with me, to me, for me, on my behalf or whatever. I think it's it speaks to a fundamental issue about us as, as people in that we are innately self-absorbed, self-centered. Uh, Wes Henderson is a new teacher at Cherokee Christian, and he, we had a um, kind of a parent um, event a few weeks ago, and uh, I was in his room as, as my son is in his class, and he was talking to all the parents in the room, and he was just talking about how, you know, how, he, how he approaches the instruction of history and, and so forth. And he made a comment that I thought was really insightful. Um, he said this. He said, um, he said, it is not that history repeats itself. It's that people fundamentally don't change. And I think that that is a reflection of what 
the whole 9-11 illustration points to. And so as we kind of walk into a study of what's called primeval history, Genesis 1 to 11 is referred to as the period of primeval history. Primeval meaning of or relating to the first age or ages, especially of the world. So the beginning of the beginning kind of idea. As we, as we step into this kind of study of, of prime, what's called primeval history, I think it's important for us, before we even really get into the text of Scripture that we're going to be really digging into in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, starting with chapter 1, verse 1, obviously, before we even start there, I think it's important for us to really remind ourselves of the context with which we approach even Genesis 1-1. And if you think about that for a second, you know, when you, when we, when we in our study of Romans, for example, or in any Bible study that you've been involved in, and in really, in, in particular, in our church, a church like this, that places such an emphasis on careful exposition of God's Word in that the historical and grammatical context of the passage, the passage, the verses around the passage, all this is very important to really getting at the right meaning of the passage. In other words, we don't just grab a verse and say, you know what, I've got this really clever idea or this really poignant, you know, meaningful point that I want to drive home that I've kind of come up with out of my own brilliance. And so here's my point, and here's a Bible verse that supports it. That's not really what we do. What we say is the scripture is powerful. The scripture is incisive. And the scripture is God's word and God's revelation to man. And so we want to know what it says and what it means. And so understanding what it means has this important characteristic about it that there's context to the passages. So if you're studying Romans or Ephesians or whatever, you'll do things like, who was it originally written to? Who were the Ephesians? What was Ephesus like at that time? Um, What are some of the cultural uh, dynamics that were going on? I mean, you do all that kind of study and you, you talk about those things to make sure that what it says and what you take from its meaning is accurate to what it was originally intended to mean, as God originally intended it. But if you think about Genesis 1-1, if you start there, where's your context before that? Like, you, like where, do you, where do you go, right? And who knows what Genesis 1-1 says? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? <laughs> Right? What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, it's probably one of the most well-known verses of Scripture in the Bible. I mean, like, universally, not just among church people or professing Christians. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you're starting, like, at the beginning of the beginning. So I think it's important for us to figure out what is our context, even when we approach something like that, where you're going back to the beginning of the beginning, and I think that this idea of history not repeating itself, really, but that the fact is that people just fundamentally don't change, is a, an important insight into our context for this kind of study. Now, the title Genesis, obviously, uh, you probably know this, but it does literally mean the most um, accurate English translation is origins. Um, it's taken from the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Koine Greek, and um, its most literal translation into English from that is origins. The Hebrew title for Genesis is, is really in the beginning. It's the first word in Genesis chapter 1 is the title of Genesis is what it's taken from. And, and this, this title follows the custom of naming books 
um, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, based either on the first word or the first few words or the first phrase, um, the first expression in the book. But it means in the beginning, it means origins. And according to one commentator, Genesis is obviously a book concerned with origins, the origin of the earth's creation, of humankind, of institutions by which civilization is perpetuated, of one special family chosen by God as his own and designated as the medium of world blessing. It's about origins. It's about beginnings. That's what Genesis is about. But if we look back to this principle of the, that man fundamentally doesn't change, history doesn't repeat itself, but man just fundamentally doesn't change, we need to set all, all this in its proper context. And to do this, I want to kind of, um, kind of pull you out to a whole different idea for a second. Have you ever thought about your voice? Kind of a random question, right? But have you ever thought about, like, how does your voice work? I mean, quite honestly, I never thought about it until I had this idea for this particular study and I read about it. So the fact that you haven't thought about it is you're only, like, a little bit behind me and I had to come up with something. So, <laughs> But think about the voice for a second. So here are the main parts of voice production. There's the power source, which is your lungs. There's the vibrator, which is your voice box. There is the resonator, which is your throat, nose, mouth, and sinuses. So let's, let's dig a little deeper here. The power for your voice comes from air that you exhale. When we inhale, the diaphragm lowers and the rib cage expands, drawing air into the lungs. As we exhale, the process reverses and air exits the lungs, creating an airstream in the trachea. This airstream provides the energy for the vocal folds in the voice box to produce sound. The stronger the airstream, the stronger the voice. To give your voice good breath support to create a steady, strong airstream that helps you make clear sounds. The vibrator, or the larynx, or voice box, sits on top of the windpipe. It contains two vocal folds, also known as vocal cords, that open during breathing and close during swallowing and voice production. When we produce voice, the airstream passes between the two vocal folds that have come together. These folds are soft and are set into vibration by the passing airstream. They vibrate very fast from 100 to 1,000 times per second, depending upon the pitch of the sound we make. Pitch is determined by the length and tension of the vocal folds, which are controlled by muscles in the larynx. Now, the resonator. By themselves, the vocal folds produce a noise that sounds like simple buzzing, much like the mouthpiece of a trumpet. All of the structure above the folds, including the throat, nose, and mouth, are part of the resonator system. We can compare these structures to those of a horn or trumpet. The buzzing sound created by vocal fold vibration is changed by the shape of the resonator tract to produce our unique human sound. When our voices are healthy, the three main parts work in harmony to provide effortless voice during speech and singing. You probably never thought about that. <laughs> so back to our context. Now think about this. In all ages, man has persistently used this amazing and complex system called the voice to scoff, to blaspheme, and to deny the very God who created it and sustains it by his grace and power. 
That's our context when we come to Genesis 1. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, including your voice. The oxygen that you take in and that you exhale that produces your voice. And yet man has historically, through the ages, used the very mechanisms that God created and placed in him to scoff him, to blaspheme him, and to deny him. So when we come to Genesis 1-1, we need to know this context. We need to recognize that it's not just a history of origins. It's not just the beginning of history, but it's actually the beginning of God revealing himself. It's the beginning, it's our beginning record of God showing us who he is and all of his power and glory, his creative power and glory, his redemptive purposes, his plan for the ages. And when you think about what often happens when people approach In particular, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, the creation narrative, uh, the Christian community as a whole in general has been plagued by this, this comprehensive accommodation to scientific discovery in recent eras. Listen to what the Italian scientist and scholar Galileo said, this goes back way back to the 15th, 16th century, 16th, 17th century. Galileo, who laid the foundation for modern physics and astronomy, also supported the Copernican theory, which is that the, the sun is, uh, we have a sun-centered solar system, which was a revolutionary concept in that day. Listen to what he wrote. This is what Galileo wrote. This is what he wrote about scripture. He said, since holy writ is true and all truth agrees with truth, the truth of holy writ cannot be contrary to the truth obtained by reason and experiment. This being true, it is the business of the judicious expositor to find the true meaning of scriptural passages, which must accord with the conclusions of observation and experiment, and care must be taken that the work of exposition does not fall into foolish and ignorant hands. Now, I have a question. What's wrong with that proposition? Any ideas? Any thoughts? I mean, he starts off by saying, holy writ is true. Where does he err? Did you catch it? Exactly. In this one statement, he puts scripture on the plane of being true, but it's not transcendently true over and above the what he calls conclusions of observation and experiment. That's man. That's man coming at Genesis 1.1. That's man approaching all of God's revelation of himself. We come at it from this perspective of total self-absorption. That is a fundamental statement of enormous pride. When you say something like, God and his revelation of himself must meet my conclusions that I have determined based upon my observations and my experiments, you're going to completely miss God himself in his revelation completely. 
And that's our context. To go further, Romans 1. Go ahead and turn to Romans 1 because I think this is so helpful. Uh, This is often quoted because it, it has such broad application and context for so many different matters in Scripture and so many different theological truths. But I think it just, it's helpful for us to kind of see it in the context of what we're going to be studying in Genesis. Remembering that this is our context as, as from, from man's perspective as we approach the study of God revealing himself, the beginning of God's revelation of himself. Romans 1, 18 to 25 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the problem. They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We're talking about folly here. The folly of man. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, claiming to be able to observe the things in the created order and draw conclusions that Scripture must agree with. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and engaged, excuse me, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's, That's modern science right there. Do you see that? that? That's modern scientific experimentation and conclusion drawing. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now let's go a little bit closer to our Genesis 1-1 starting point. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. I'd like for us, in, in sort of almost parallel in some ways, um, to the Romans 1 passage, I want us to read the entire chapter 3 passage. So, so important and revealing for, for how we approach Scripture. What is man's context? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 starts by saying, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And I want you guys to pay very careful attention to this whole uh, dialogue, okay? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Men, we got to learn from this. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Bad move. Bad, bad move. (laughs) Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I want to stop right there. I was going to read the whole chapter, but I want to stop right there. He ends by saying, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So I want to look at five observations here from this passage that really I think helps us set our study of this text and really helps us set the general approach of mankind as a whole to God's revelation of himself in general as we look at this study of patriarchal history. Some, some observations from this passage, and there's many that we could make. This is certainly not exhaustive. It's just meant to kind of get us introduced here. The first thing I, I think we should notice here is that the mortal enemy of our souls is a master manipulator, liar, and twister of God's word. What did he do in twisting God's word? Yeah. And you know what? He uh, actually made a promise that, that he couldn't keep. He manipulated her into thinking that she was going to get something out of this deal that she wasn't going to get. He's a, he's a master manipulator, liar, and twister of God's word. So we, we occupy, we, we are completely consumed in an existence both internally in a fallen flesh and all around us in a fallen world system that's ruled by the prince of the power of the air, we are consumed, the oxygen that we breathe is consumed and influenced and challenged and, and, and led astray by a master manipulator who is keen on the strategy of twisting God's word, especially, especially when seeking to deceive those who would profess some love of God, some love of Christ, some commitment to the truth of who God is and who, what his word says. I mean, he, he, he's, not, he's not passive with the professing believer in any respect. 
to cause us to think differently about what God's Word actually says. When we get into studying the creation account, we'll talk a little bit, although I'm not going to make this about some big apologetic study and look at all the different ideas about origins and all this comparative things that we could, we could spend tons of time on. I really want to talk about the text of Scripture. But we, we, I think it's important that we talk about things like you know, theistic evolution, for example, because you have a lot of professing Christians who would hold to that view. But this, this is, this is, this is a, a, a manipulation of otherwise faithful, confessing Christian people. And when you look at the implications of even that position, it's, it's devastating to your complete view of Scripture on the whole. Second observation from Genesis chapter 3. This is so important for us. When we stray from God's clear and complete word, we are easily deceived by half-truths. We're quickly disenchanted with God's abundant provision, and we are foolishly determined in our rationalized disobedience. I know that's a mouthful. If you're trying to take notes, I'll, I'll say it again. Um, when we stray from God's clear and complete word, and what, did, what happened with Eve? What, what, what happened in this narrative? How did she stray from God's clear and complete word? It's pretty subtle, but it's, it's obvious there. What did, she, what did she say in response to the question, did God say you may not eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? She, added to what God she did. She added to it. She strayed from the clear and complete word. She added to it by saying... Yeah, what he said was, we can't eat of it, and we can't touch it either. That's what she said. Now, it seems in some ways, in just a sort of a passing observation, that seems kind of benign, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, you know, it's not that big of a discrepancy, right? I mean, you probably shouldn't touch it, you know, because if you touch it, then you're going to be maybe tempted to eat it. So not a bad principle to live by. But the fact of the matter is, is that I think that the principle here, the observed principle here, is that when we stray from God's word, when we start adding to it or cutting it up into little pieces that fit into our framework, to our fallen framework and way of thinking, or allowing sort of systems and ideologies and philosophies that have permeated a fallen world to force us to think that we have to somehow accommodate God's revealed word to those things. If, if, we, if we don't trust in and adhere to God's complete word, his clear word, the results are devastating. We're easily deceived by half-truths. We're quickly disenchanted with God's abundant provision. That's the other part of this. Think about this for a second. We can't. I mean, we can't possibly fathom what it must have been like in that place, in that time. I mean, we, we have, there's no way that we can, our greatest imagination can't even get close to having a picture in our minds of what it must have been like in a perfect environment, a sinless environment, an environment in which the presence and fellowship of God was imminent and ongoing. We, we can't even possibly imagine that. And what, what did God say to them? Look at this place. Of every tree in the garden, you may freely eat. This is all yours except this one. Look how easily she became disenchanted with God's abundant provision because she wasn't trusting in and listening to God's complete and clear word. 
And then the last thing is that we become foolishly determined in our rationalized disobedience. She started going, huh. It, it does look like it'd be good to eat. And, you know, if there's this added bonus that I'll be like God, it can't be that bad, right? I mean, she actually had to process her decision-making there and rationalize her disobedience. That's what happens, guys, when we stray away from God's clear word. And, and Genesis in whole, in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, really Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is assaulted throughout the, the ages as being unreliable, mythological, unscientific. So we have to face that challenge carefully, recognizing that the context that we find ourselves in is one like this. We can be led astray by half-truths. We can become disenchanted with what God has provided for us in his truth and in his word. And we can start to rationalize disobedience. The third observation here is that when we fear that our sins and failures will be exposed, we tend to run and hide and or shift blame. And that's clearly what happened there. We tend to run and hide and, sh- and or shift blame. When we start talking about uh, the beginning of the beginning here in Genesis chapter 1, people who try to deny the veracity of this account of creation it has oftentimes more to do with their lack of interest in facing a holy and righteous judge over their sin than it has to do with anything related to clear and compelling science. It always comes back to our compulsion to want to hide and blame shift and and get away from accountability for our sin. And you can't walk into the presence of God as he's revealed in Genesis chapter 1 in particular and not see holiness and righteousness and blatant accountability for sin on display there. Fourth observation from Genesis chapter 3 is that the consequences of ignoring the truth and falling into sin are certain, severe, and sustained. They're certain, they're severe, and they're sustained. When you read that account of the curse, and then you think about, just to extrapolate Genesis 3 out to your experience now, anyone in this room having trouble with the effects of sin, either in your own life, in your own thinking, in your own actions, or in the actions that are perpetrated against you by others? Anybody had any trouble with that lately? Brutal. It's brutal what sin costs. It's certain, severe, and it is sustained. It is ongoing. But the last thing, and this is what's so great about Genesis as well, these first 11 chapters in particular, we are going to see the redemptive, gracious purposes of God on display as well. So our context is fallen, corrupt, a fallen mind, We can't look at the universe as it's been created. We can't have observations and draw conclusions that are going to be pure and accurate and precise because we are fallen and we're inclined toward sin and self-centeredness and our minds are not pure and pristine. So that's our context. But guess what? 
Even in our darkest moments, God remains our ultimate source of comfort and care. And I love that verse, that one little verse in verse 21, where it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This this wasn't just kind of an unfortunate circumstance. We we have to see, this is like the fall. This This was epic, the fall of man. And yet, even in, his, even in his execution of justice, of righteous justice, in leveling out the curse, he shows himself gracious. He comforted them with clothing, cared for them. So as we come into this, obviously this is just a big introduction. We're going to actually get into the text next week. But as we get into this, we have to come at it recognizing that this is the context that we come with. The context for us, it's, it's a Genesis 3 kind of context. It's a Romans 1 kind of context. And the world around us, that's their context too. So all these arguments about what is true or what is not true, what is reliable or what is not reliable, what is myth and fantasy and what is you know, scientific certainty. We need to recognize that the starting point for everyone in those discussions is this. We're fallen. We're prone to sin. So I'll conclude with John Calvin's introduction in in his commentary to Genesis. And I think it just is a way for us to kind of set our minds toward how we can approach this study. Listen to what he says. Since the infinite wisdom of God is displayed in the admirable structure of heaven and earth, it is absolutely impossible to unfold the history of the creation of the world in terms equal to its dignity. For while the measure of our capacity is too contracted to comprehend things of such magnitude, our tongue is equally incapable of giving a full and substantial account of them. As he, however, deserves praise, who with modesty and reverence applies himself to the consideration of the works of God, although he attain less than might be wished so, if it is this kind of employment I endeavor to assist others according to the ability given to me, I trust that my service will be not less approved by pious men than accepted by God. I have chosen to premise this For the sake not only of excusing myself, but of admonishing my readers that if they sincerely wish to profit with me in meditating on the works of God, they must bring with them a sober, docile, mild, and humble spirit. We see indeed the world with our eyes. We tread the earth with our feet. We touch innumerable kinds of God's works with our hands. We inhale a sweet and pleasant fragrance from herbs and flowers. We enjoy boundless benefits, but in those very things of which we attain some knowledge, there dwells such an immensity of divine power, goodness, and wisdom as absorbs all our senses. Therefore, let men be satisfied if they obtain only a moderate taste of them suited to their capacity. And it becomes us so to press toward this mark during our whole life, that even in extreme old age, we shall not repent of the progress we have made if only we have advanced ever so little in our course. Do you hear the humility? Do you hear the, the perspective of coming before the grandeur of God's creative work with a docile spirit, with a humble spirit? 
ready to learn and ready to just get a taste of the glory and power and awesomeness of who God is and his creative plan and purpose. That's my hope for us. I hope that as we go into this study that we don't get overly preoccupied with theories of origins, but that we become overwhelmed again in a fresh way by the power and grandeur and majesty and grace of the living God that we worship.